turn with me this morning to Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians as we look at chapter 2 and reading back over verses 1 through 10, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Hear with me then the reading of God's holy word. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Thus far as the reading of God's word. Well, we've all probably turned on the TV or listened to the radio, and before a program was about to air, there was this voice that came on, and it said something like this. The views of the show may or may not reflect the views of the station. Viewer discretion is advised. And I know as I stand here and as we are about to dive deeper into this man of lawlessness, that I may hold a position someone else in the church might not agree with. I know for certain that other good godly ministers hold a different view of who the man of lawlessness is from me, and yet we can still be brothers. Remember, Paul's teaching the saints in Thessalonica what must occur before Christ returns. This is why the conversation has arisen. This is the non-negotiable, that Christ will return. Who the man of lawlessness is doesn't change whether one is a believer or not. And so just as you might, have, might hear on a TV or radio show, this is sort of my disclaimer to you guys so that I don't get any uh, angry emails or phone calls after. Although I know none of you would do that. But in all seriousness, what I wish to accomplish in our study of the text is that I can lay out for you what this passage itself is saying concerning the man of sin, allowing the text to speak for itself. And maybe some of you, as you hear me teach, will say, yep, I agree with that. Maybe some of you are on the fence and are open to being swayed one way or another based on the arguments. And perhaps some of you have made up your minds. You know the arguments and you just disagree. But no matter where you fall on that spectrum, I hope that we all can come away with a better understanding of the text in order that we might glorify our God together as long, and also with a greater appreciation for the salvation and benefits that he has granted to you and I in Christ Jesus. Now, so often I know that we we like to shy away, it's our nature to shy away 
from difficult texts, both the people in the pews as well as ministers alike. And people in the pews, I think, do it because certain passages or books don't seem to make much sense. It's hard to understand. I think ministers do it because they, they understand the seriousness that we have to take God's word with. And so they don't want to preach something when they're not entirely confident in their own view on the matter. And so I understand this. I've taken this into account, which is why I wanted to start slowly. And this is why I wanted to lay the groundwork in last week's sermon, even before we approached the topic. But now that we're here, I'm going to lay out what I believe the Scripture tells us, and what I'm convinced of, concerning this man of lawlessness. Now, for the sermon this week, my primary focus will be on verses 3 and 4. And next week, then, I'm hoping we can come to the conclusion as we go through verses 5 through 10. Now, remember from last week, the issue at hand was concerning the coming of Christ and our being gathered to him, as Paul states in verse 1. Right? This is the reason Paul writes to remind them what must precede Christ's return. And here we're told in verse 3, that is the apostasy and the revealing of the man of lawlessness. Now, as a disclaimer to everyone, I will be using interchangeably the names man of lawlessness and man of sin. They both are essentially saying the same thing. Lawlessness is the failure to conform to the law, which is sin. And in fact, both are used depending on the manuscript being read, although there is better manuscript evidence for man of lawlessness. And so we're going to unpack what Paul describes must occur prior to our Lord's return by breaking it down under three headings this morning. The first is defection from truth. The second is opposition to Christ. And the third will be counterfeiting God. So point one, defection from the truth. Now I'm sure that throughout your Christian lives, all of you have probably heard numerous and varying Opinions on the identity of who this man of sin is. Some have said that the Roman Empire, or Nero. Others say he must be a practicing Jew. Others say Muhammad and Islam. Perhaps you've heard the Pope and the Papacy. Maybe some of you have even heard Hitler. Others may say a, a future eschatological person. And yet even for a Christian to give an answer, identifying someone or some group or some organization as the man of sin is oftentimes frowned upon by others who don't believe it is our place to go there. But whatever your stance is on whether you agree, whether it's right to name the man of sin or not, what we can do, I think, quite convincingly from our text today is identify who the man of sin is not. And I say that with confidence because of what our text describes. In verse 3, we see this Greek word, apostasia. Apostasia. That is the word translated as rebellion in verse 3, if you're using your English Standard Translation of the Bible. But it can also be translated as a falling away or apostasy, which is what I'm sure became obvious to you all when you, when you heard that word, apostasia, because it sounds just like apostasy. And so Paul says the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And so that begs the question then, brothers and sisters, doesn't it? Apostasy from what? Apostasy from what? Well, G.K. Beale in his commentary 
on First and Second Thessalonians points out that the word itself can refer to either a political crisis or a religious crisis. But, and this is important, when it's used in both the Greek Old Testament and the New Testament, it is only used to describe a religious crisis. Okay, let me provide you just two quick examples, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. So the first comes from Joshua, chapter 22, verse 22. We read this. The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows and let Israel know itself. If it was in rebellion, there's that word, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord. It is religious in nature, the rebellion. Now, the other one from the New Testament would come from Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 12, where we read this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. There's that word, apostasia, fall away from the living God. Another of religious nature. And so we see that apostasia in the scriptures always refers to a departure from faith. So that means that this apostasy is not political in nature, but rather religious. And that makes perfect sense, because Paul is concerned with instructing the saints about what will happen within the confines of the Christian church. This is what all the New Testament writers are concerned about and warn the saints about. Matters concerning spiritual issues that will affect them and all believers. I mean, Peter says in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, but false teachers also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in heresy. Right? This is the same thing that Jesus warned the disciples about in the Gospels. Beware of those who are wolves coming in sheep's clothing. And why does Jesus and Paul caution the saints about false teachers coming into the church and trying to bring destructive teaching? It's because they're worried about the church being corrupted by false teaching. And they don't want the saints to unwittingly fall prey and defect from the truth by listening to those who would appear to be Christian teachers and are not. This is the same concern Paul has in our text this morning. He doesn't want them to be deceived, but rather to be aware that there will be a great defection from faith among those who belong to the church. Paul wants them to know that not one or two will defect from the truth of the faith and fall away from Christ, but a whole host of people will depart from the faith. This is one event that must occur prior to Christ's return, a, a general apostasy. And yet, as Paul warns, and he informs the saints, we see the pastoral heart the apostle has for them in delivering to them this hard reality. Because what Paul's really saying is, I think, He's saying, you're in for a, a long, hard battle. And many may be lost to this defection from the truth. And counted among many of those, maybe those whom you love. And yet his job is to prepare them for this. To not give them what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. And what they need to come to grips with. So that they themselves are not deceived. Because this massive rebellion isn't something that just happens instantaneously, but it happens over time. And we're told it was already beginning with them. In verse 7, Paul says the 
mystery of lawlessness is already at work in their time. It was in mystery form. It was in its beginning stages, in its infancy. But the plan was already in place. And Satan, using his power, is the mastermind behind this, working gradually within the church over an extended period of time, but which becomes more evident as time progresses. And the same can be said of the revealing of the man of sin. It is a progressive revealing or unveiling over time, which at some point we are able to identify through what Paul describes. And so I guess I just answered the question of whether it's right or wrong to identify this man of sin. Yes, brothers and sisters, it certainly is right to identify him. I mean, what does Paul describe him for? So that no one could ever know who or what he is? No, he tells them, and he tells us what to expect for the very purpose of being able to discern and identify him when he comes, to protect ourselves against him and to warn others. But where else have we heard this word mystery? In Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 26, he tells them that there was a, a mystery hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed. He was speaking of the mystery of salvation. Now, that didn't mean that Christ wasn't known before the mystery was fully revealed, but that over time he was progressively unveiled more and more until fully revealed. And the same is true, we read here, of the man of lawlessness, of which that mystery was already at work with them in their time, yet to be fully revealed in the future. Now, how does Paul then go on to describe this man of sin in verse 3? He says he likewise will depart from the faith like the other apostates Paul described, and in fact he will be chief amongst them. He is in fact known by his defection. This is why he is called the man of sin. He's given this title because he is one who is enslaved to sin, all the while calling himself a servant of God. And he's a slave to sin because he is serving his father, Satan. And his allegiance is to him with the purpose of fulfilling the desires of his father, which have evil, wicked, and destructive ends as he attempts to bring about the spiritual perdition of the masses while living in defiance to the law of God. This is why Paul calls him in verse 3, the son of destruction. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to see the importance of Paul's word choice. Because what he's giving us here is of great significance in identifying the man of sin when he calls him the son of destruction. Because who else is described in the scriptures as the son of destruction? And this, this name, son of destruction, can also be translated son of perdition. And this word, son of destruction, or son of perdition, has two occurrences in the New Testament. One here... And in one in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John seventeen twelve, where Jesus says this, While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them had been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And who is that son of perdition, that son of destruction that Jesus said had been lost? It was none other than Judas Iscariot. Jesus says in his prayer, I guarded all of them, I protected all of them that you have given me against apostasy. None have been lost, only that son of destruction. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus failed to guard them all but Judas, 
but rather Judas, by all accounts, had the appearance of being a, a follower of Jesus, a disciple by profession and practice, but was in fact born the son of destruction and betrayed Jesus with a kiss, proving never to really be a saint to begin with. But I want us to see that Paul, in drawing on this name, as well indicates to the saints in Thessalonica, and to you and to I, that the man of lawlessness will be someone who appears to be a follower of Jesus. He, like Judas, will be a pseudo-Christian. He, like Judas, will pretend to love Jesus and to serve Jesus and to advance his kingdom. But his agenda, in fact, is diametrically opposed to that of Christ. He, being linked to Judas as the son of perdition, will likewise be an enemy within, secretly attacking Christ under the name of Christianity, influencing others along with him to sin. Because this, in fact, is who he is by his very nature, the man of sin. So this then leads us to point number two. If point one is defection from the truth, point two is opposition to Christ. Now, just as Paul ties the man of sin to Judas, I believe, likewise, he ties him to one other figure as well. Because who else in Scripture do we read opposes Christ? How about the Antichrist? Point two is that we will know the man of sin by his opposition to Christ, well, the very prefix of the word antichrist, the anti, means against or opposed to. And so the evidence, I think, weighs heavy that the antichrist and the man of sin are not two different figures, but one in the same. Just look at how both of them are described. The antichrist is opposed to Christ by his title alone, just as the man of sin is. And just like the man of sin, the antichrist will be an apostate, from the true faith. His origin, likewise, will be Christianity. We read this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Turn there with me, brothers and sisters, if you like. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. This is what we read about the Antichrist. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. You see, in addition, just like the man of sin, the Antichrist, will deceive. Not only will he come out of Christianity, but he will likewise deceive, just like the man of sin. We read this. In First John chapter 2, verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And so the man of sin is the Antichrist described to us also. The one opposed to Christ, his adversary, an enemy who usurps power never bestowed upon him by God, and in his pride and in his arrogance, he takes what was never given to him, or for that matter, anyone else, and he grants it to himself by the aid of the devil. Now what's important to see, though, is that although he opposes Christ, it will not be open opposition, but rather secretly 
and with subtlety. If this wasn't the case, why would Paul even need to inform the saints about him? It wouldn't take any wisdom to see who it is. Anyone with two eyes could make him out. And so we see that the man of sin must align himself with Christ in order to make it an easier task. Think about any type of warfare. It's much easier to attack the enemy once inside their gates than trying to attack them from outside the city walls. And once you're inside the gates, your attacks become much more effective. And so it will be with the man of lawlessness. He will adopt this method of combat by taking his seat in the temple of God. Now this is another indicator for us that the man of sin cannot be anyone other than someone who bears the name Christian. Because we read that he will take for himself the seat in the temple of God. We read this in verse 4. As Paul says, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Now this is one issue that arises when dealing with this passage. And one main reason people get the passage wrong and then consequently they get the man of sin wrong. It's because they misidentify the temple of God. People are thinking physical temple when they read this passage when there is no reason to take this to mean a physical temple. This is what the dispensationalists get wrong, thinking that this will occur in a a rebuilt temple in the future. This is what the preterists get wrong in thinking that this this already took place in the desecration of the temple in AD 70. And this is why it's important to understand how the apostle uses the phrase temple of God. Since he is the one who is the author of our text. Right, Paul uses this phrase five times in the New Testament in total, including here. And every single time he uses it, it never means a literal temple, but it always refers to believers as the temple of God. And I want to quickly demonstrate this to you. So I'm going to quickly turn to these passages. If you'd like, you can jot them down and look for yourself in the uh, later on, but first the passage comes from First Corinthians chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen. We hear this: Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Right? You can flip over to chapter six, First Corinthians chapter six verse 19 and we hear this or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you okay we can also look then to 2nd Corinthians chapter 6 verse 16 2nd Corinthians chapter 6 verse 16 and we hear this what agreement has a temple of God with idols for we are the temple of the living God here we see believers as a temple once more. Finally, then, turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, where Paul says this, In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You see, this is key to helping us 
interpret the text that is in front of us today. When you see this, the candidates for the man of sin decreases significantly. Because Paul is saying that this man of sin finds his footing within the Christian church. Another reason why we as Christians shouldn't see this as speaking of an earthly temple destroyed in AD 70 is that for the Christian, the temple no longer mattered as it once did for so many. Remember, Paul is now writing in a time after Christ died. And so for all of his followers, when he died, the importance and the significance of the temple died with it. And so even the destruction of the temple for believers was not a, a terrible thing. But instead it proved the prophetic words of Christ to be true. But once Christ dies as that final sacrifice, the temple no longer can even be called the temple of God. Its glory is gone, for when Christ died, the veil was torn in two, we read. And God was not to be found in sacrifice and ceremony any longer. But God was to be found in Christ, that final and perfect sacrifice. And that is a lesson to each of us here who belong to Covenant Baptist Church or to Christians everywhere, for that matter. The building you worship in isn't of great importance. Obviously, we all need somewhere to worship. But as Paul told the pagans at the Areopagus in Acts 17, God does not dwell in a temple made of human hands. God dwells wherever his people are gathered in spirit and in truth. And that's whether you have a nice historic church building, a new state-of-the-art building, or if you meet in a library at a high school. Bells and whistles, lights and sounds, don't constitute the church. People do. People who meet each professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is this truth that Paul is concerned that the saints would remain in. Because people by our nature, want to be where it looks most advantageous for us. Our people want to be where the most people gather because they think, well, that must be where the Spirit of God presides predominantly or most prominently. They want to be where all the movement is going towards so that they can say that they're a part of it. And yet Paul doesn't want the saints to be overtaken with curiosity and to join in as people over time will be departing from the truth by following after lying. Because remember, whatever is new, brothers and sisters, doesn't always mean that it's good, or that it's beneficial, or better. It might need to be big and bright and cool in order to divert you from what it lacks, and that is substance, and that is truth. They distract with the left hand, to deceive with the right, and before you know it, you fall into the trap and forsake the truth. And this is what Paul describes as already happening and will continue to happen to a greater degree in the future. A lack of care and concern for the truth. This is why Paul says in verse 9 that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonder and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They didn't love truth. They didn't hold on to the truth with both hands. They didn't savor the truth or delight in the truth. And so this should teach us, brothers and sisters, that we ought to be 
lovers of the truth, lovers of the word, desiring to be wherever the word is proclaimed faithfully, no matter where God leads us. A desire to follow truth at the expense of all things. Now what Paul also tells us is that the man of sin will in his arrogance exalt himself, our text says, over everything or anyone who holds the position of authority. And this appears to be the very same thing we read about happening in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 11 verses 36 and 37 we read this as Daniel describes the vision of this man and he, as he says, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one of the beloved woman. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. Now doesn't this sound like the exact same thing that Paul is describing for us here? In verse 4 we read, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship and takes for himself a seat in the temple of God. Right, this sounds exactly like what Paul is describing. He will exalt himself above kings and rulers and dignitaries and God himself establishing himself upon this earth as the one deserving of the highest reverence and honor. This is what we see in the use of the phrase take his seat that Paul uses. Right To take one seat means what? It means to rule, to exercise authority. And just as we read in many places that Jesus took his seat at the right hand of God, he takes his rightful place ruling and reigning and exercising authority over the church. And so the man of sin will mimic that. And he will take his seat ruling and reigning and exercising authority amongst those who would be called Christians. Because he will look the part of a Christian but is really just a deceiver but not only will this man of sin come to oppose Christ not openly but under the veil of friendship and yet deceptively he will also come to counterfeit God this is point three we have already seen how this man of sin will be a defector from the truth we just read how he will oppose Christ but he will also counterfeit God this is what we read from Paul at the end of verse 4 when he says, He will come proclaiming himself to be God. This man of sin will take for himself the very names belonging to God, and with it the adoration as well. He will rule in the church as God as he takes up his authority in the name of God. In Daniel 7, he addresses this man of sin in verse 25 saying this, speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints against the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. Now, brothers and sisters, who is the ultimate lawgiver? It is God. And yet we see what the man of sin who has taken up his seat in the temple of God will do as he exercises his own authority in adding to or subtracting from the already existing law of God. He will proclaim himself to be God in doing what only God has authority to do. 
also. His influence will be great, and he will look to receive the worship and reverence only due to God. In Revelation chapter 13, which describes the man of sin as depicted as the beast in verse 4, we read this, And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Now this sounds quite familiar to many texts we read about God, doesn't it? In Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, we read this, Who is like you, O Lord, amongst the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? What was said of God, along with the adoration and the praise and the worship and honor due solely to him, we see given to this man of sin. What, else, what was God praised for here? Did you hear in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, at the end, for doing wonders? What do we read will mark the coming of the man of sin in verse 9 in our text today? The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. You see, the man of sin will try to counterfeit God and especially the God-man, Jesus Christ. This should be obvious to us all in the title Antichrist. The name tells us that there is some correspondence between the two, but how? Well, all we have to do is look at the language used to describe both. In verse 3 of our text today, we read, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. This word revealed or apocalypse. We see describes the man of sin and his being revealed. In verse 9, this is what we read also. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. The parousia, that word is for coming, is used to describe Satan's arrival. This is language that mirrors that of Christ. We can just look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming or the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that same language is being used. Or in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 7. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Apocalypse, that word again is used here. And so you see the Antichrist, the man of sin. There's not just one who is opposed to Christ, but he will counterfeit Christ as well, looking to take the place of Christ, setting himself up as another Christ on earth by the power of Satan. But what should our response then be? When we read what Paul describes will happen, how should we as a church react? By following the instruction and the example of Christ, that he gave to us while on earth. When the devil tried to get Christ to bow the knee in the wilderness, Jesus responded by quoting scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You see, brothers and sisters, you will do well in every situation that arises if you simply listen to the voice of the Lord. And you know his voice because you are his people. And he speaks to us from the scriptures by his spirit, which indwells each 
in every one of you. Now we must be aware that there have been forerunners of the man of sin or Antichrist from the beginning of the church. John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, as we read earlier, Children, it is the last hour. And as many of you heard that, Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come. You see, but the way that they remain out of the grasp of the Antichrist's hand in the first century, in the way that we are to remain out of his grasp now, is by remaining in the arms of the Lord and clinging to Christ. We too, brothers and sisters, we must keep ourselves close to God and his word. And that shouldn't be difficult if we truly have fellowship with God. Because it is through that fellowship that we will be kept from deception. It is only in that fellowship where our souls find their safety and their comfort and their protection. No false Christ will ever be able to offer that to you. No counterfeit God can excite the soul to adore the true and risen Christ. No counterfeit God can supply the soul with the nourishment it needs to endure all trials. And so we, do, we know that it is only Christ who can and will come to our aid in times of trial and offer us protection. It is only He who will embrace the church with His love, not allowing us to drift away from His tender care and His mercies. And so it is the duty of all of us here to worship He alone, for He alone is the divine lawgiver. He alone is the one who forgives us all of our, all, from all of our lawlessness by His blood alone. So be alert that you never give what belongs to Him to another. Not the reverence or the honor or the praise or the glory. For that belongs to the one who has the power to create and to bring everything to life and did. Yet he also is the one who has the power to bring back to life dead sinners. To this one belongs all adoration. To Christ for who he is and what he has accomplished belongs all praise. To him it ought to be said, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Christ the Lamb who will be worshipped along with the Father as every creature will fall before the throne declaring this, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is what the man of sin desires as he counterfeits God. He wants this as he sits in the temple of God. Yet he knows his influence is temporal. And so he deceives and he tries to make many sons and daughters into sons and daughters of destruction with him. He works within the church to attack the church, to get people to defect from the truth through deception as he opposes Christ and he counterfeits God. And so we see through our study, in just these two verses, in verses 3 and 4, that the man of sin is not Muhammad or Islam. It will not be some Jewish figure in the future. It was not the Roman Empire in the first century, nor Nero or any emperor. And it was not Hitler. We see from our study today 
that any of these figures who people argue is the man of sin is nothing more than mere conjecture and a reading into the text what they already believe and applying it to the text, trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Let this teach us that as we look to identify the man of sin, that we start with the text. We let the text speak for itself. And when we do that, the identity of the man of sin becomes much more clear. Now many of you right now might be saying to yourself, well, you told us who he is not. And yet you've told us today also that he can be identified. So brother, who is he? Well, if you want to know, I'll tell you. The man of lawlessness is going to be identified for you next time we meet. Sorry, brothers and sisters, to hold you in suspense, but please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we long for your son's return and cry out together, come Lord quickly. Yet, Father, we seek to be faithful and fruitful as we await his triumphant return. So we ask that you would continue to keep us in the truth, that you would grant to us greater discernment, that you continue to preserve us until that day Christ returns, as he himself prayed, that we would not be taken out of the world, but that you would keep us from the evil one. Yes, Lord, please keep us from the evil one this day. Strengthen our faith. Cause us to despise what is false. And yet, Father, we ask that you would forgive us for those times in which we are astray from your command out of disobedience. So, Father, we come before you this day and we ask all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.